Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I feel like I haven't been here in forever. It's probably only been a couple of weeks, but I miss you guys when I'm not hosting. Um, just a quick note, I have started mentioning this at the at the opening of many of our podcasts, which is if you like this podcast, if you find it really helpful, it would be really helpful to us if you would go to Apple Podcasts and post a review for us. That's going to help other people find us as well. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find us. So please consider it. Um, today, we're going to be answering your questions. But before we get to that, we actually have a really interesting opportunity today to hear from, um, to hear about last season's admission cycle, which, as you all recall, was smack in the middle of probably one of uh, the most intense times of the COVID pandemic um, that we've had so far. My fondest hope is that it is it stands as the most intense time we've had in COVID and that everything from here on out is a little bit less marred by COVID, but I guess that remains to be seen. Um, and joining me today is my colleague here at College Coach, Gabby Tobias, who joined our team directly from the admissions office at High Point University. Um, so at this time last year, she was reading files and making admi admissions decisions. So she's going to share her insight. Hi, Gabby. Hi, Beth. Thank you for having me. I'm happy uh, to join. Absolutely. Well, we're thrilled to have you here. Um, and I think, you know, last year was obviously a useful time for everyone, regardless of whether you were applying to college or not. But if you were applying to college, I think it was the stress really was increased yes. tremendously, right? Right. Um, and a lot of things changed. We had a lot of schools that previously had required test scores go test optional. We had students in activities that were canceled or postponed. We had grades that instead of, or classes where instead of getting a grade, you were getting pass-fail scores. So it really threw everything into upheaval. And so um, I thought it would be really helpful for to get your perspective on what you saw as an admissions officer during this time. Um, and, and I think the first place I want to start is one is a place where we're getting a lot of questions regularly, and that is with test scores. And I was yeah. curious, you know, if you saw a lot of students taking advantage of the test optional um, policy that High Point was have. So why don't we start with that small question? Did a lot of students submit without scores? Yeah, so we were in a different situation when it came to that because previously high point was test optional before the pandemic, which is awesome. Um, but so I think about before the pandemic, about 40% or so students, I can't don't directly quote me on that apply <laughs> test optional. Right. And then during the pandemic, it ramped up to about 70 or so percent. So a really big jump. So to answer your question, yes, we did see a lot of students taking advantage of those test optional policies, especially the region where I recruited, where I was based in Southern California. So yeah. a lot of students couldn't test at all, you know, where I'm at. So 
if not most of my applications coming through were students who were submitting and applying test optional. So Got it. Got it. So to your point, you were working at a university that already had a test optional policy and kudos high point for that policy. We love test optional here. Yes. Um, so my guess is, well, I would love to get some insight or to share some insight with our listeners in terms of, you know, do you review the, the applications that come in without scores differently than the ones that came in with scores? How does that process work for the students who are opting not to submit scores? Yeah, so for the students who are opting not to submit scores, I think we're looking a little bit more closely at their academic trajectory. So looking a little bit more at their progress from those ninth through 11th grade years and kind of that grade trend is what you're hearing most of that. So maybe if you had a rocky start ninth grade year, you know, how did you pick that up from 10th through 11th grade year? Or maybe on the opposite end, if you didn't, you know, how did you challenge yourself? What types of courses did you take? You know, really looking closely at those students who maybe didn't submit test scores, but are still taking those rigorous kind of courses and how successful were they within those courses as well, too. Mm -hmm. I think also we leaned a lot on the qualitative features of the applicant. So, you know, their essay, their letters of recommendation, also, some of their extracurricular activities as well, too, to kind of show a little bit more of their academic side. So if they did any activities that related to what they wanted to study, that was kind of something that I looked at to see how prepared were they for that course of study going into a college setting. So I think it kind of helped a little bit more. COVID really kind of helped expose that to see that really big indicator for success was how students performed in the classroom. Right. You know, versus for three hours on a Saturday yes. or a Sunday evening. <laughs> or whatever. I can't remember right now, but you know, I I think that was kind of really a great thing that we saw is, you know, how are these students performing day-to-day basis? How consistent are they in the classroom? So. Right. And, and as you point out, right, that's a much bigger indicator of success in college. And I think all of these schools that have adopted test optional policies prior to COVID, right. Mm -hmm. So policies that weren't dictated by the, the, the virus, recognized, were recognizing if they had recently instituted these policies or if they were longstanding, one of the things that we hear over and over again is that the colleges saw that the biggest correlation was not between your test score and how you did when you got to college, but how you'd done in high school. So um, I think it's helpful insight. I hope it's helpful insight to our listeners to understand that when you take away the test piece, all it really does is throw more emphasis on the other pieces. So if those are great and the test piece is not great, awesome, right? If those are not so great and the tests are not so great, well, I don't know that taking away the test helps you at all, but um, you know, not having test scores in part, as part of that policy for those kinds of schools with the holistic approach that a place right. like High Point has, right? Absolutely. Um, is going to, is, is typically not going to present any kind of a problem. As we've mentioned on the show in the past, that certainly there are schools where, you know, your bigger schools where their decision is almost exclusively based on your grades and your test scores. Well, when you remove test scores, it it might be a little bit more problematic. They don't necessarily Mm -hmm. have the staff to read super closely. Um, But again, if they've gone test optional, they figured out a way to do it. And so if you really can't test or your scores are not reflective of your abilities, then I think I, again, will encourage and encourage again and again and again, don't submit those scores. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Um, So in terms of, you know, one of the big things that COVID also impacted were 
extracurricular activities. So I was curious how you handled that when you were reviewing applications, right? So students who may have been very involved or even a little involved prior to the pandemic and now were not really able to do much of anything because everything had been canceled. How did that impact how you read those files? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think for me, because a lot of the applications that I read were students who had a couple years under their belt prior to COVID. Mm -hmm. So I think for that, that's really kind of where I leaned a little bit more heavily on is what were they doing their ninth and their 10th? And for some, maybe a little bit more of those 11th grade years Mm -hmm. and kind of how are they able to kind of jumpstart their high school career? And what were some of those activities that they were involved in prior? I think I also had some students and we saw students get really creative also during COVID and they were Mm -hmm. able to do a lot of virtual opportunities that maybe they had planned on doing. And then I also encourage students talk about those activities and and talk about those extracurricular activities that you planned on being a part of, but maybe you're not able to, and and kind of talk about what your role was going to be in that as well, too. So I really relied heavily on some of the previous years. And I think it was also great because I interviewed a lot of my applicants beforehand. So I was kind of able to see who they were and kind of how involved they were in their school through those interviews. I know not every student has that opportunity with the schools that they're applying to, but Mm -hmm. That's kind of why I stress for students is interview. If the school is offering an interview, interview, especially now during COVID when they're not readily able to go to your school, you're not readily able to visit campus, talk to them and, you know, just kind of tell your story and, and talk about some of the things that you're interested in doing and, and some of the things that you're currently involved in doing during COVID and, you know, how creative you were able to get there. So I, I also relied a lot heavily on some interviews and kind of some face-to-face virtual time as well, too. Right. And and for those schools that aren't interviewing, what I do like is you're pointing out that you were looking at what they had started to do. So mm-hmm. not ideal for the student who maybe didn't get involved uh, right away and was sort of waiting on that. So for those of right. you who are younger and listening to this, you got to start right at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but I know even when my son was filling out applications this year um, that, you know, there were a couple of places where he said, you know, intended to be involved or this was canceled for, Mm -hmm. you know, 11th grade to explain why. Not that I think the colleges more or less get why he would be involved in something in 9th and 10th, not in 11th, but picking it back up in 12th. I think that's the other thing too, right? Everybody is experiencing COVID. Right. Everybody has experienced delays. So it's so tempting to be so in your box that all you could think about is, what they won't know about your child or what they won't know about me if you're the one who's applying, but um, you know, remembering that this has impacted everyone and the colleges, including your admissions officers, and they get it. They know this is having a big impact. So um, I think really helpful insight, insight yeah. there. Um, so in the college, in the application, um, and certainly in the common application and in other applications, they may offer students this opportunity. There is a question asking about how COVID impacted you and your life. And I'm curious if you felt like students took advantage of that question appropriately. And by that, I mean, did you get you know, responses that were really you didn't need or did people not fill it out that you think should have? I just love your thoughts there. Yeah, I think majority of the students, so I'll say, let's say 70-30, 70% majority of the students who took advantage of that section 
did it well. And they talked about it to create a little bit more context of Mm -hmm. their personal situation or their academic situation or emotional or or mental health or anything like that. And I think that was really great for me as a counselor to kind of step back and and see, you know, this student, not only were they successful in the classroom and whatever else they did, but they also had these barriers and these obstacles that they had to face throughout it. Right. I did have some students who they, I did find that they just talked about, you know, being virtual and kind of being online and not really answering the question in a sense of talking about an obstacle and barrier where it kind of, to your point of what you said previously, you know, we're all kind of experiencing it and we're all virtual and online. And, you know, I'm aware that you do have virtual school now. Let's talk about some other things that's going to help create a little bit more context and dive a little bit more into your situation. So I would say majority, yes, but then you did have some of those few, which I still appreciated those because, you know, they answered it and they, that was something that they felt like they had to kind of share with us. And I appreciate that, but I would say majority did it correctly. And and then they kind of talked about some of those personal situations. So, and so, and if they didn't respond to that question, that was, I'm guessing not an issue, but I'd love your thoughts. No, it wasn't an issue at all. I think I encouraged students to use that space however they felt they wanted to use it. And some students felt like they were lucky in their privilege and they were blessed to not have any interruptions. And, and I think right. that's great. You know, if you know, don't fill it out just to fill it out and just to kind of yes. check that box in a sense, fill it out if something really intentionally happened to you. I don't think that was anything at all that was held against them or something that I felt that was negative at all in any type of way. I'm always a component for using the additional information session or section on the application in general, just so I can have a little bit more context about who you are as a student if anything happened. But regardless, I said, it's up to you to talk about whatever you want. So, right. Right. And I, you know, my advice to my students has been routinely, if you don't have something more than just, well, I was virtual and this, then, you know, I would leave it blank because to your point, that experience is something that is shared. I had a student who um, was talking about how his parents were, um, first responders, but the yeah. the things which I think I get as a big deal, but the way that his life had changed was so minimal. Yeah. Um, in the way that he described it, I said, I'm not, you know, to me, I don't think this is going to add anything to your application. And he ultimately opted not to send it. And that didn't, that was, didn't hurt him at all. So I do think it's key that you have something specific that you want to share that goes beyond what everybody is experiencing. Um, right. And that if you don't fill it out, that's not a problem. So um, I think good advice there. All right. Um, We have two more two more things that I wanted to talk about. And one is, you know, obviously, most campuses were closed to students in terms of doing visits. And most people were not really eager to drive all over and go to see college campuses anyway, or if they were, you know, if it wasn't open to you, that was a lot less appealing. It, was it a problem from an admissions perspective that students hadn't visited your campus? So I think yes and no. I think with the I think really when it came to that, we presented so many other options and opportunities and you know where students could do it. Mm-hmm. So it kind of opened up the door and kind of opened up the access for students who maybe they couldn't readily get on a plane or get in a car and visit our campus, then they could 
do a virtual information session or they can come to my virtual campus visit or an interview. So we had a couple different touch points that students can kind of take advantage of. Mm -hmm. I think that was kind of really where I was focusing on is how did you take advantage of those? And and did you take advantage of those, you know, is the key thing. And, you know, if I reached out to you several times for an interview, you know, did you respond back? You know, those types of things that we're kind of looking at in regards to just demonstrated interest in total. So -hmm. I think it was a little bit more easier for students. I think the problem that came with some students not visiting campuses is I had a lot of students, especially with me being in California and High Point being in North Carolina, who had to make the decision sight unseen. Yeah, that's hard. That was hard, right? So I was worried from just a counselor perspective that, you know, I hope this is, you know, their choice and that they're making a good choice and, you know, that they feel like it is going to be somewhere that they can call home for for so years. Yep. Um, but I think that was kind of the only no to that or the only yes portion of that that I saw the problem was with students just kind of making decisions in a sense blindly. Yes. Um, but I think we did a good job at making sure every student had access to visiting campus, whether that was virtual or in person in some sort of way. So right. And I think that is a really good point, which is that physically setting foot on campus was less important from an admissions perspective, but engaging with you since you presented yeah. so many options is important. And so I say this to my students all the time. I will say this to our listeners. If the school is offering you ways to engage with them, take advantage of those. Yes. Um, they may not always be part of their admissions process, but there is a, a likelihood, especially again, when you're talking about smaller schools, private schools, that they are going to be tracking your engagement with the mm-hmm. institution. And so you want to take advantage Very quickly, as we come up on our time, Gabby, any last pieces of advice for students who are applying this year um, who obviously have experienced disruptions from COVID? Yeah, I think focus on the things that you can control right now. You know, I think a lot of times students and parents and I understand and I look, I hear you guys because we've had so much downtime and everybody feels like they're behind in life and just in general, but focus on those opportunities and those experiences that you can control in the application process and don't stress yourself out on some of those things that you can't control. Right. And really utilize some of those qualitative features. If you are applying test optional and that's something that you're maybe not as confident or you're a little bit more nervous about, you know, making sure that you're maximizing your activity list, your essays, that you're reaching out to student teachers, getting those letters of recommendation and making sure that they're adequately talking about who you are as a student. I think that's kind of the bigger picture is tell your story Mm -hmm. and advocate for yourself in a way that's going to be authentic and engaging. Um, but I think that's just really my biggest thing is just focus on what you can control right now. And then the rest, I promise, will fall into place after yes. that. So great advice, Gabby. Thank you so much for yeah. joining today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're answering your questions. So don't go away. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. 
Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In, a college coach conversation. We're doing one of my favorite segments always, um, and that is where we answer your questions. And then joining me to answer your questions is one of my favorite guests, Shannon Vasconcellos, who is a former financial aid officer at both BU and Tufts and works with me here at College Coach. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Good. All right. Why don't we jump right in and maybe we could start with a question for me because this one's a doozy and it, it might take a little bit. Yeah, it's a long one. So this comes in from Monica uh, and Monica... Um, introduces the question like this. I was looking at high schools for my younger daughter. My older daughter is at a traditional high school, which offers many AP classes. In fact, 30 or more are offered. I am looking at my younger daughter either attending that same traditional high school as her sister with AP classes or instead attending a nearby, a nearby IB high school. Uh, and looking at the schools, uh, I am learning that perhaps the IB program actually provides a significant advantage by providing an easier track than an AP program to students applying to the most selective colleges, uh, given the following reasons. Um, so one, in obtaining an IB diploma for the most rigorous plan offered, students will take at max three courses um, at an HL level. Is that honors level? Higher, higher level. High, higher, higher level, level. okay. <laughs> and three courses at standard level. level. Standard, standard level. level. <laughs> okay, so only three at high level. Whereas my older daughter at her high school will graduate with 10 or more AP courses, which would equate to the higher level IB classes. Um in order to be in line with other students who are taking the most rigorous courses available 
at her high school. So there's more, but I'll stop there. <laughs> yes, because there's already a ton to unpack yeah. here. All right. So let me back up first and just simply explain for our listeners who are not familiar with what an IB high school is. IB stands for International Baccalaureate. And the International Baccalaureate program is exactly what it sounds like. It's an international program. um, And it is typically more common in um, Europe and other parts of the world than here in the U.S. But there are definitely schools here in the U.S. that also offer an IB program. Some might be a straight up IB high school in that everybody does the IB program, although not everyone will do the full diploma. And some schools, they might offer the IB full diploma program, but they might also offer APs and students can kind of choose, do they want to do IB or do they want to do AP? In this situation, I'm going to make the assumption that A, Monica is here in the U.S., and B, that the IB high school only offers IB. So there is there are no options. Right. So a couple of really important things to understand here. The idea that the IB program is easier, definitely not. The whole point of the IB program, especially internationally, is that it is preparing students for college. It tends to have them focus a little bit more in high school and A lot of colleges outside of the U.S. are actually three-year programs. So instead of taking that first year like you do in the U.S. where you kind of explore your options and then maybe you declare your major at the end of your first year, some at many schools, you even have till the end of your second year. At a lot of schools, you're going to go in with your major and that's what you're doing. And you're not, especially in the U.K. Um, The Scottish... uh, Programs are a little bit different in that many of those are four-year and you you can explore a little. Um, right. But, you know, you choose a path when you are applying to the UK schools. Um, so there's that. The IB program is not – you cannot equate higher-level courses in the IB to APs. Um, it doesn't work that way. And also – Um, While it is traditional to do three higher level courses and three standard level courses, um, there are, I've spoken with this, uh, about this with my colleagues, at certain of the most selective schools in this country, um, they are going to actually expect to see students doing four higher level courses. So if you're going to be competitive at some of those, you know, this Stanford comes to mind immediately, a Uh Yale They're really, those students are generally going to have four higher levels versus um, three. Gotcha. And the program itself all goes together. So again, it is, it is a, it's a diploma program. So there's a lot more that goes into that. There is a whole theory of knowledge class that students take. There's a whole paper that they have to write. That is the culmination of their experience. So I would be looking beyond simply, um, the number of most rigorous classes that you take. And again, I would not say that the higher level equates to AP and standard level does not. I would say it all equates to AP um, when a school is thinking about, and it, and it really doesn't. It's different programs. Let me back that right. up. It doesn't all equate. It, they are very different programs. So in your, in as an as a admissions officer reading an application from an IB student, you are not saying, oh, three higher levels, great, and then looking at another student and saying, ooh, 10 APs, because you also don't do that. You're not totaling up the number, and the student who does more APs is automatically more competitive than the student who does not. So I think there's a fundamental flaw in 
comparing these programs in this way. So that's okay. A. Okay, so A, three higher level is not easier than 10 AP courses. Mm-hmm. Answer to part A. Okay, part uh, two or part B. In addition, less testing is a benefit to the IB program. Um, my older daughter will have studied stress and SAT for 10 AP tests by graduation. In contrast, IB students don't sit for their exam until May of senior year. They don't even obtain scores until July after graduation when they already have college acceptances and are packing to leave. So when they sit for that IB exam, there is no stress. Um, that's a lot of stress and study time that is alleviated in the IB program because it doesn't have the same testing rigor as the AP program. What say well, you? What say I about this? Well, first of all, there is, unless the high school requires that students take the AP exam after they take the AP class, um, there is no requirement that students taking APs actually take the exam or report those scores. Those are always an optional part. They're not a required part of the application process. And as such, they also don't really play a big role in the in how you evaluate applications. Um, so I would say that, OK, first of all, if the student took, you know, generally speaking, the if a student's doing, let's say a student took 10 APs like she's explaining about her daughter. I would say that generally that might mean, you know, maybe one AP sophomore year, maybe three APs junior year, maybe it's four, um, and then maybe five APs in senior year. Well, you don't sit for those APs for senior year until the end of the year when you've already been accepted to college. And you can or cannot decide to sit for those exams. Right. Um, whereas with the IB program, you must sit for those exams. It is a requirement of getting the diploma is to ah. the final round is that. So on one hand, you actually have to take those exams when you do the IB full diploma and you do not have to take them again, unless the high school requires them for any of the AP classes that you take. Right. And then also the scores are again, an extra part of the process at the um, at the U.S. system. So they're not a requirement. And in fact, when I was at Penn, you know, we don't require official scores to be sent from those AP exams. We asked if there were any you wanted to report. We made note of them. But really, that didn't come into play until after you were accepted and decided to attend. And then you could see what you might get some credit for in terms of those AP exams. Um, they also, we also offered some credit for IB exams. So same thing, right? You were going to send those yeah. scores in after you were already accepted and had decided to attend. So, I, you know, again, I don't know how your daughters handle stress or if they find it was really stressful or not really stressful, but I don't think that the the testing piece is necessarily any less stressful for the IB or necessarily more stressful for the APs. Um, on that front. Okay, cool. So now for points A and, one, and B. One last note is that there actually are, some, in some cases, students will sit for an IB exam at the end of junior year. So it isn't always the case that you only uh, do exams at the end of senior year. So just throwing that okay, out Okay, cool. Okay. okay, so based on points A and B, uh, I, I am seeing no clear winner on between IB and, and AP. Right. Um, so third, I think, and final point, um, colleges grant acceptances based upon quote-unquote, predicted score provided by the school counselor. 
I admit I don't know who predicted how, I don't know how predicted scores work, but could a generous, kind school counselor provide elevated predicted scores, which would be compared against kids who actually sat for AP exams? I don't understand why colleges look at the programs equally. What am I missing? So for those of you who are not watching this, the taped version, I was just shaking my head no <laughs> about the uh, predict, you know, comparing predicted scores against AP. So you're not comparing, stu- you don't sit in committee or have discussions and say, well, this kid did APs and this kid did IB. And it just doesn't work that way. But let's yeah. go back to this whole concept of predicted scores. So colleges in this country do not grant acceptances on predicted scores. Colleges in the UK grant what they call conditional acceptances, and that's based on a student obtaining the scores that have been predicted. And in the UK, they do that also for students with APs. So if you want to go to school in the the UK, you actually do have to sit for those AP exams, um, and they will set expectations in terms of the score they want to see, and then you need to actually hit that score. Um, So, you know, certainly that's very stressful, but as are the IB predicted scores, right? So if your predicted scores are at a certain level, the the acceptance in the UK is based on those you actually achieving the scores right. that you're supposed to, right? Okay, so this is how that works. The teacher of the individual class provides the predicted score. At most AB, IB high schools in this country, the teachers are also giving grades. So it's not, that's not always the case. And it may not be the case at the schools that your daughter is, or the high school that you're considering for your daughter, mm-hmm. but there are many IB programs in this country that give grades. And so the schools are looking at those grades. Um, if they don't have grades, if all they have are predicted scores, then obviously they're going to be basing their decisions on those predicted scores. But those are determined by the teachers. They are also overseen by the larger IB organization. So if you had mm. teachers being kind or really nice and predicting scores that were inflated, um, that would be a problem for that IB school. There is right. considerable pressure on those teachers to be accurate in those estimations. Um, And then, you know, just the simple fact of if you as a college admissions office are reading files from an IB high school that are coming in with inflated IB scores, and then you see the actual scores that the student gets and they don't match up, that's going to be a problem for your high school. And now you're going to be flagging that those kids in future years, like, well, these predicted scores are always inflated. So you, you know, how do you take anything that the school tells you seriously? So the school's reputation really depends on them being as accurate as possible. They really do not want to inflate anything. So no, a kind and generous school counselor is not going to be artificially inflating those, um, those predictions. Um, And they're not comparing them against students who sat for AP exams. So the, the colleges, the colleges look at programs equally because students have different choices so what they, the schools that care about you being in the most rigorous curriculum available are going to be evaluating what was available to you in that high school, in your high school, and what did you take advantage of? And if you went to a school with the IB diploma program, then they're like, awesome, you're doing the most rigorous curriculum available to you, and we will evaluate you with that in mind. The IB program, and as are the APs, are more than just... You take a test and see how you do on the score. It's all about 
learning and all of the things that go into it. And I would encourage you to dig much more deeply into the IB program and look at everything that's involved rather than simply looking at the your perception of these tests or, you know, this equates to IB. It doesn't equate. So stop trying to equate it. You really want right. to look at them individually and make the call about what will be best for your student and what was best for her sister or stressed out her sister might be non-stressful to her, to your younger daughter, or, you know, the IB program might be a perfect fit for her, but it won't be easier and it won't be viewed as such, um, nor will, you know, so I guess that's all I can tell you at this point. So <laughs> I'm a little fired up there, but um, I do, I think in short, what are you missing? You're missing all of the stuff I just shared and hopefully you will take that into consideration. All right. I need to look at our time because as I suspected, that took a very long time, but we have plenty of time to get in a finance question. All right. So this question comes to us from Al. Um, Hi, Elizabeth, Ian and Sally. Love your show. Thanks, Al. We love our show, too. And we're glad you like it, too. Um, In one of the episodes, one of your guests mentioned that the FAFSA must be submitted every year by the students getting financial aid, but not all CSS schools require so. I think, okay, if so, how can I find out the list of schools that do not require reapplying CSS applications? Okay, so that not all CSS schools require that you fill out the CSS a CSS form. profile each year, correct. Each year, exactly. Um, I guess Northeastern is one of them. Question. I'm asking because my daughter is a high school junior and I expect my income to increase significantly in the next year so that she may qualify for some aid in freshman year in college, but not in the sophomore year. I know a little bit about this, but (laughs) take it away, Shannon, because I don't know enough to be dangerous. Right. So, um, Al, I I think you're right in your initial premise that, um, yes, every college requires the FAFSA and requires the FAFSA every year. That is a federal government requirement. If you're applying for any sort of federal government student aid, they need the FAFSA each year. Many almost entirely private schools require this other financial aid application called the CSS profile. Um, Certainly freshman year, many schools require the profile all four years. The two colleges I worked at did in fact require the CSS profile all four years, but there are a number of colleges that only require the CSS profile the first year, do not require it in subsequent years. Northeastern is one of them. You're right about that. Um, Here's where I think things are a little bit off in in your premise, Al. Just because a college does not require the profile in continuing student years does not mean they are not going to take your increase in income into consideration because that you could have answered it better. Exactly. (laughs) Right. They're picking up your income from the FAFSA, which is going to be required every year. So um, that generally those colleges that don't require the profile every year um, will use sort of some baseline profile data of elements that are only available on the profile, such as the big one is home equity that they don't ask about on the FAFSA. They're just kind of assuming that's going to stay pretty consistent from year to year. So they're not going to make you jump through the hoops of filling out the form when they can pick up the most important element, your income on the FAFSA. And if your income skyrockets, your aid can, in fact, go down in those subsequent years. Even if they're not looking at the profile, they are still looking at the FAFSA. 
that is at the vast majority of schools that don't require the profile in subsequent years. However, one important caveat, particularly because you called out Northeastern, there are a few schools, very, very few, that do in fact guarantee financial aid um, for all four years, um, specifically institutional grant money. They can't guarantee any federal student aid because that does require the FAFSA each year, but they guarantee you that your institutional grant money will not change over your four years of college, no matter what happens with your income. Northeastern is one of them. Boston University is one of them. And I believe Gonzaga is another one. Those are the only three that I know of off the top of my head. There might be a few more out there, uh, but they are very, very few and far between. So in fact, at those three particular schools, you're right. If your income increases later, that won't be sort of picked up. You will still get your same institutional grant money. Um, But those are the only three schools. Just because a school doesn't require the profile in future years does not mean they're guaranteeing your aid for four years. They're still going to pick up on income changes on your FAFSA. So can I safely assume there aren't, there isn't a list that exists out there that everyone out there just needs to be able to access where of the schools that don't require the profile after year one or that will will guarantee your institutional grant money. That's not something that exists anywhere. Not that I know of. And again, it would the schools that guarantee your institutional grant money is going to be a very, very short list. I'm not sure if there are any beyond the three that I mentioned. Uh, Again, there might be one or two more, but a very, very short list. Got it. Okay, Um, I think we have time to fit in. At least one more before. Okay. All righty. The next question for you comes from Rachel. She says, I love your shows. Question about sending regular decision applications early. Is there any downside to sending applications, say, one month early to the January 1st regular decision deadline? Here's the background. My well-organized senior daughter sent early applications one week earlier than the due dates to her three early action colleges. Two were reaches, one was a, a safety school. Regardless of the outcome of these early results, she has a solid, well-balanced list, as per her counselor, of nine nice. more yes, of nine more schools for regular admission. And my daughter already finished writing supplemental essays for all of these schools. So there's not much left for her to do. Since the senior year is getting hectic, I, mother, not daughter, started thinking that maybe she can send them one by one now instead of waiting to do so until um, mid-December, unless there is a downside. What do you think? Any insights would be appreciated. Um, so I know I, there's no downside. It, it doesn't give you an advantage to get them in earlier beyond just the know, knowing that, okay, everything is in. I don't need to worry about it. And in fact, my son submitted almost all of his applications probably about a month before the deadline um, because he was ready to. So there was no reason not to. Um, and he didn't have a lot of extra writing. So that's one of the reasons he was ready early. Uh, the, the only thing I would say is that If any of those early action colleges, so if any of the schools on her list are schools that she's less excited about than the early schools she's she's already submitted, um, I get you know will will she still want to apply to those schools if she gets into any of those um, the reaches in particular? And 
If the answer is probably not, then I guess the only thing, the only downside is you could save the application fee by waiting um, to submit those applications until you hear back from the early action institutions. But um, if that's not the case, if she needs to hear from all of them so she can compare financial aid offers or anything like that, then no, there's no downside. They will go, they will be processed and they will go into uh, kind of like a holding area um, before they're released for regular decision reading. So again, there's no advantage, but there's absolutely no downside or disadvantage beyond paying a fee for an application that perhaps your daughter wouldn't submit if she gets into a- another school in the early round. So right. that's really it. All right, we are going to take a quick break. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone, welcome back. We are here for the final shorter segment of the podcast because I went rogue and we went really long in the last one. But we're going to get right to uh, another question for you, Shannon. And this comes to us, I don't know why I took my glasses off, um, (laughs) from someone who did not share their name. Um, Our child was given aid in the form of a need-based scholarship and a loan. The school does not offer merit-based scholarships. We discussed maybe selling a car and carpooling so we wouldn't have to take the loans this year since it's not subsidized. But we're told by the financial aid office that if we choose not to accept the loans, it could affect the need-based scholarships that are offered the following year because they may assume there are resources available that they don't know about. Is this typical? Interesting question. Yeah, and no, it's not typical. I saw this question and it was not typical to me. I went and asked all of our colleagues, have you ever heard of this happening? And everyone said, no, this would not have happened at any of the dozens of schools that we've collectively worked at. It it seems like a really smarmy move um, to, you know, discourage people from, you know, budget budgeting and finding ways to save money so that they don't have to um, borrow any more than they need to. So this is not typical um, at all at, at any of the schools that any uh, of us have worked at. 
Um, not taking a loan for a freshman year would not affect any future year's aid at all. We would not make any assumptions about that other than the family you know, budgeted so that they didn't have to. Right. Um, so, so no, this is not typical. It is surprising to me. I can't say for sure that, that whoever told you this was wrong. Um, I think in your position, um, I might just try maybe talking to somebody else in the financial aid office to see if you do in fact get the same answer or not. You may have spoken to a work study student who just had the wrong end of the stick uh, and you talk to somebody else uh, and they may give you a different answer. Um, if it is in fact the policy of the school, again, that would be surprising to me, but not impossible um, and aid is reduced for the, you know, the next year, I would send in an appeal letter and explain um, the reasoning why you did not take the loan and what you did budget-wise to make that happen. Um, not that, and it's not that you have some secret stash of money someplace. Right. Um, so if your aid was reduced for this reason, I would send in an appeal letter and ask for it to be reinstated. But it is surprising to me. Um, it is not a typical policy. But I would say that um, something that one of my colleagues brought up that, that does ring true for me is if a family declines a student loan, um, but then comes back to appeal for additional funding during that same school year, basically saying that they have some extreme um, you know, financial circumstances, could we give them any more grant money? If they haven't taken the, the loans, the, the small amount of government student loans that we've offered um, initially, but then they're asking us for more grant money to make kind of a special exception for them. We wouldn't necessarily look particularly generously upon that appeal. The attitude being, you're not even kind of taking the money we've already offered you, you know, you're not willing to do your part, yet you're asking us to kind of go above and beyond. So that's the only part of it that rings a little bit true. If you were to go back and appeal during that same academic year for additional grant money, um, the fact that you haven't taken the loans out to begin with might be a little bit of a negative um, in the review of that appeal, unless you have some compelling circumstances why you really cannot borrow any more money. But in terms of the next year's financial aid, it's, a, you know, kind of a straight calculation. They're not making judgments about how you paid the previous year's bill. Um, so it would not be a typical policy for them to take grant money away. I can't say it's impossible, but I'd ask somebody else in that financial aid office, see if you might get a different answer. If they do take grant money away, I would appeal that decision. Cool. Yeah. And the next question we have comes in from Jen. Um, and she says her student attends a small, rigorous online high school with synchronous classes. Think Stanford Online High School or Davidson Academy Online. We love the school and plan to stay because it's an amazing fit. But because this is such a new option, I do worry about admissions officers understanding it. 
what can my kiddo do with regards to their application or extracurriculars to communicate to the colleges that even though they attended an online school, their high school experience was a full and robust one and they weren't just a hermit in a darkened room. Yes. Okay. A couple of things, I think. So first of all, One of the things that every school makes available to the colleges when a student applies to college is a profile. So I would ask the school, if you have never seen the school's profile, which is usually updated every year, um, but I would ask to see what is the profile um, that they're sharing with the colleges. It may be online. At a lot of schools, it is. Um, But take a look at that. And that should share... um, good information about the high school, about how classes are conducted, about how students engage with each other. Um, And it should give a fairly good picture of what that school experience is like. Um, That said, the other really important thing for students, and, and this would go for homeschooled students as well, one of the concerns always is that interpersonal skills piece, right? So when they get along with other students. So what I would encourage is getting involved in extracurricular activities that puts them together physically with students their own age. And so maybe that is playing sports, maybe there's a local rec league, or maybe you can join and play varsity sports for your local high school. Um, Maybe it's just some clubs that they join or in-person art classes or something like that, but find ways to be engaged with other students, ideally physically engaged with other students, unless there is, you know, um, health for health reasons they right. can't right now. So those would be some things that I would be focusing on outside of the classroom. So it's clear that your student isn't just sitting in a darkened room, but is in fact, um, you know, can and does engage with students their own age and is getting out of the house and, and, are, they're ready to be on a college campus and live in a dorm and deal with other students their own age, because that's really the primary concern you're going to have when students are either homeschooled or doing online school is simply that, do they have the social skills to be successful once they get to college? So, right. Shannon, thank you so much for joining today. Um, we're, it's that quick. We're up. That's what <laughs> happens when you take 23 minutes for your second segment. So, um <laughs> I appreciate you being here. Oh, my Um, pleasure. So we also want to thank everybody uh, who joined us today. And I want to thank Gabby, who was here earlier. Next week, Ian is hosting. We're talking about juniors and winter break. So what things juniors can be doing in their upcoming winter break um, towards the college process. Um, Also, next steps for students who are going to start getting early decision and early action results. Um, And then spring Uh, Tuition payments are going to be due soon. So uh, talking about how to cover those payments with savings, with um, tuition payment plans, with loans, um, we're going to be talking about that. Uh, Don't forget, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more we get, the easier it is for others to find us. If you have a question and you want to see Shannon um, or I answer it or one of my co-hosts answer it, then send them to us. You can post them on Facebook, on Instagram. Um, you can send them to us via email at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. And we are here every Thursday at um, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
Have a good week.